Dear listeners, welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, episode number 47. These are curated discussions for therapists and anyone interested in deep intra and interpersonal restorative transformation. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I invite you to make space to see yourself. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. I'm joined today by marriage and family therapist, Laura Carr. Laura has been practicing since 1997. She's passionate about offering her clients a way to live in freedom rather than being imprisoned by limiting and fear-based beliefs of past trauma experiences. She's co-created a theory that she calls compassion-based awareness therapy. And I love this. Simply put, Laura teaches people how to be more self-aware and how to practice awareness from the lens of compassion. We're going to really dive into that and talk about what exactly that means in this episode. She's a student of Zen studies, and she's dedicated her life to enhancing her own awareness practice. She's also married to her loving husband of 18 years, and they have two sons together. You know, there's a lot of things that I talk about all the time when I talk about connectfulness. One of them is how pain is a great teacher for us. We dive into that in this conversation also. There's a lot of places where my evolving theory of connectfulness and Laura's theory of compassion-based awareness intersect and merge really beautifully together. And so this is a beautiful dance of a conversation where I think you're going to get to know how we both work and the lens from which we both practice a little bit deeper in this episode. And if this conversation interests you, I have an amazing retreat coming up over at Menla in the Hudson Valley of New York this February 14th to 19th, 2018. It's called Divine Mirrors, a Valentine's Couples Retreat. And I'll be leading it along with Chisty Dryden and Michael Burbank. It's really going to be a luxurious and restorative, nurturing event that really invites you to dive in and look a little deeper and, and experience what conscious connection and relationship is all about. You can learn more at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. And there's also a link in our show notes. So without further ado, here's the show. I'm so excited to introduce Laura today. So welcome, Laura. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, gosh. I can't wait for this conversation. Like, I've been jumping out of my skin for weeks thinking about talking to you. (laughs) So I know this is also your first ever podcast. It is. We're so happy to have you. And so, you know, there's so many different reasons I've been wanting to talk to you. And I feel like in many ways, our work complements and... Mm. There's some synchronicity that I feel between Mm. you, and and I don't even feel like I know you well yet. So I'm Mm. excited for the opportunity to get to know you on today's chat. Fabulous. Yeah. You're in the midst of developing your own theory, and you're calling it compassion-based awareness therapy. Yes. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. So my husband and I, he's also a therapist, and we train therapists. We have a clinic where people come to train for us for their practicum. And so for years, people, you know, ask, what do you do? And so, you know, you kind of throw out this theory. And I was trained as a Bowen family therapist. And 
the therapy I experienced personally was really in the humanistic and existential realm. You know, my therapist never said, this is the kind of theory I do on you, you know, all of that stuff. And so, but I never felt like we fit in any one category. And so, you know, my husband and I will often at night just sit and talk about like, you know, what do we do? And so we just been talking about it. And, you know, really, it really pulls a lot from, you know, humanistic and existential and attachment theory. But about in 2002, we were introduced, I found a book of a Zen teacher, her name is Sherry Huber. And I was not even into Zen. In fact, I was very judgmental about that kind of stuff. But my husband was. And so I bought this book for him. And then I ended up reading it. And I was like, oh my God, this is like it. This is what I do. This is what my therapist does. Oh my, who is this person? And she does retreats up in Northern California. And so four years later, I attended this retreat and changed my life. It's seriously like five years of therapy in one week. And so I really began to study her work and it really changed or complemented. It helped me calibrate in a way. And so, but I didn't really know what is this. And so as we sat down, kind of when people ask, what do you teach? I felt like we really had to call it something different because it's an integration of a lot of different things, but it's not integrative because it's its own unique version all of it, if you know, yeah. So it felt important to name it. And then one of our students at the time is an intern now, or is a licensed therapist now. She helped us name it, and so we were just brainstorming one day, and we came up with compassion-based awareness therapy. And what that means is our focus is really twofold: is our focus is in assisting people in increasing the awareness of their own process that's going on with them internally. And to do that from the lens of compassion and unconditional love, no shame, no guilt, no feeling bad, because when we're feeling bad, we cannot learn. And from that, our whole worlds change. I so love this. You know, I often talk about play and curiosity and how they're so important Mm. because when we're in that space of being able to play and being curious, we can learn. Yes. <laughs> so I'm hearing a similarity between how we both kind of play. 100%. Stuff. Yep. I'm curious kind of because there's another side to kind of what you're talking about. And you're talking about how, you know, when you're in a place of shame, it shuts things down. How do you get around that? How do you teach compassion? You know, people I think have an inaccurate view of compassion. Most people think of it as coddling, condoning, just letting people get away with whatever. And if we think of, you know, compassion can hold everything. It sees the authenticity of the human regardless of the behavior. And so when a person feels Wait, hold really, on a minute. Slow yeah. down. That's a big statement right there. Passion <laughs> yeah. can hold everything. It sees mm-hmm. the authenticity of the human regardless of the behavior. Yeah. Like that's just worth sitting with for a minute. Mm. Because what you're really saying is that there's a whole scope to how individuals behave. And a compassionate perspective is one that can tolerate and hold all of that. Yes. Without condoning anything, it sees the human. It sees the heart. It sees the intention. It sees the purity, the innocence of what's really there. And that energy holds the person to then, when that person can feel that, they can then look at the behavior. It slows it all down. Slows it all down. 
And yeah. I love this distinction too, that it holds it without condoning it. Yep. Sounds yeah. like good parenting right there. It's good everything, right? But yes, I mean, and, you know, I think a lot of the things that we learn as, you know, parents, right, people, to me, that applies to everything, you know, and, you know, I really like that we're actually, I think John Bradshaw said this, we're growing ourselves up. Mm -hmm. So we are, you know, learning to reparent ourselves in the way we wish we would have been parented. Yes. Yeah. So it's really simple. And I always tell people I work with, and nothing I say, it's not rocket science. It's not like, oh my God, right? But it's so simple, but it's really hard to do because it goes against everything we're taught. And this is a lifetime's worth of work. I mean, absolutely. This is not something that you sit down, like you might have huge aha moments in a five-day retreat, but it's not necessarily the stuff that you just absorb all at once. It's the stuff that you practice and practice and practice and practice and practice. And all the way until, you know, the end, right? Right. As my therapist used to say, we will never graduate, Mm. right? And so it truly is. And so here's the other thing, without guilt and shame, we can actually get in touch with the fun of learning, of growing, right? So kids don't feel bad about falling when they're learning to walk. They might cry. They might, right? They might need some Band-Aids and, you know, assistance, but they don't feel bad about the falling part. No, it's necessary. No, yes, exactly. So if we can let go of and learn to not indulge shame and guilt, then we can actually fall in love with the process of growing and learning. Mm, I love how you're saying that. I want to circle back to this. I want to kind of go a few other places first, but then I want to Mm. circle back because I want to come back to this idea of the shame and the guilt and how we don't get held back by them, but also what potential purposes they might serve in our lives. So again, John Bradshaw said, we only need enough shame so we don't run naked in Walmart. And (laughs) I've always loved that, right? So, you know, to me, it's that initial, and, you know, we label things in our society. We like to call them things, right? So we label it shame, we label it guilt. So for me, it's life letting us know, ooh, that our heart hurts whenever we do something that's outside of our value system. Which, you know, that we'd have to slow down and blow up and could have a whole nother conversation on because those are often taught. So there's a process of learning what's actually a value that this heart holds versus a value that I've been taught. They might be the same, but they also might be very different. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm studying with Terry Real right now. And one of the things that Uh, he talks a lot about is like, it's kind of like a scale between mm. shame and grandiosity with guilt in the middle. And the way he describes it is that the guilt is actually like a healthy space where you can look back at something and say, oh, I don't like what I did there, but I'm still Mm. a good person. I can still hold Mm. myself in warm regard. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about with this compassion. It's that ability to hold yourself in warm regard, even if you don't like what you did, that you don't fall into that shame place of, I did something bad, I'm a bad person. And you don't go into the place of, I don't even notice what I did, you know, like, or whatever, it didn't bother me. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. So it is that truly getting in touch with how you show up in life, how it feels, you know, we're so disconnected from our bodies that we tend to either, so the blame game, I'm blaming you, right? Or I'm getting blamed. And so that process doesn't allow me to get in touch with, well, how does this feel? So when I 
show up in that way, does it feel good? And again, this is really subtle stuff because people come at it, well, yeah, it feels good because I waited in line all day and I deserve to, whatever. And that's not what we're talking about. That's a belief system. We're in a good, bad, right, or wrong conversation then. So what we're having in this work asking people to slow down, look deeper, and check in. And when we really tune in, it does not feel good to behave in ways that hurt me or hurt other people. So that guilt is an indication. Yes. Yeah. Especially when those other people are the people you love. Especially, right? Yeah. And so, and then if we can stay, if we can just register the guilt, you're right, enough to go, ooh, okay, that doesn't feel good. And it can assist us in how to be the person we actually really are. Yes, yes, I love it. That's where it becomes, this is one of my little quotes, one of the things that I say all the time is that pain is information. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah, it's It's a great way to say it. Mm -hmm. It's what we learn from. And so Mm -hmm. when we can kind of hold those pieces, hold the stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable, hold the parts of us that we're not really so thrilled about. Yes, yes. And take a deeper look, slow down and take a deeper look into them. I love that. Now, this Mm. brings us right to another piece of your theory, which is that it's each individual's responsibility to end suffering by being ready to be with their own pain and discomfort. Yes. So our work is really informed by, you know, Zen Buddhist practice. And so one of the things in Buddhism that the Buddha talked about was we must, you know, be our own salvation. So no one can save us. We have to do the work for ourselves. And so, you know, integrating that into therapy, right? Or, you know, for me, it's how I want to show up for my life. It's how I practice in my life. And so for me, it's such a place of freedom. I want to offer that to clients, that perspective of how to, and my therapist used to say, you know, it's a hundred percent my responsibility, hundred percent my partner's responsibility. And then we're both 100% responsible for what we have co-created. Mm. Speak more into that. So, you know, one of the things that I tell my clients when they come in is that I'm going to assist you in turning the microscope on yourself. So there is no 60-40, 70-30, 50-50. It's 100 and 100. So each of us, whatever relationships we're in, we are bringing our stuff to the relationship. So even if my partner's behavior is problematic or my parents' behavior or my colleague or whatever, I've got a whole thing going on of how I respond and react to that behavior that is my responsibility to look at. So much. I'm thinking about so many different relationships in my life. You know, my husband, my kids, my sister, my mother, my best friends, my colleagues. Like I'm thinking of so many different places in my life where this is the truth. Yeah. But it's easy when I feel wounded, that hurt can get so big and that woundedness gets so big that I'm either in a place of blame Mm -hmm. or I'm so sucked into the hurt and woundedness that I kind of feel like a victim. I feel powerless. I feel like I don't have a say. And so however we respond, there's something to look at of how we can be with that process in a way that, for lack of better language, empowers us or assists us in being different so that we can take better care of ourselves in a relationship that doesn't feel good in the way it's 
showing up. Mm. I'm so thrilled to hear you talking about this. And, you know, I know through much of my own personal work, through my work with clients, I also know that there's this other side where when we get activated in that way, sometimes what we do is we dissociate. And it's almost like it's kind of that victim place, but without necessarily even noticing the feelings that are coming up Mm. around it that make us Mm -hmm. feel like the victim. We just act on autopilot. Yep. Yep. And I don't know enough about neurobiology to speak intelligently to it, but our brain plays a role in that as well. And I think it's really helpful for us to get that. We have a history of habit behavior. We have a history of possible trauma. We have a history of belief systems that have been planted on us, right? You're going about life and something happens and a belief gets created that, you know, I'm not lovable, or the world isn't safe, or people are mean, or, you know, whatever, or I'm ugly, or whatever it is, a belief gets attached to us that we don't actually realize it just got attached to us. So we believe it's true. And we carry those belief systems into our relationships. And then that autopilot is unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. And it's a survival mechanism. And so we're all doing the best we can. And then your phrase was so great. That pain point at some point wakes us up to, ooh, something's not working. This doesn't feel good. I don't like how my life is or I'm showing up or I keep picking jobs or people or things that always seem to lead to the same thing. So that's information. Pain is information to say, let's slow down and look at what's happening. So when somebody comes in and they say like, oh yeah, well, I see this pattern in my life, but it's not one that I want to look at. It makes me uncomfortable. Mm. That's usually, for me, when somebody says something like that to me, I'm like, oh, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you know, the great thing is we can honor exactly what you said. Tell me more. We don't have to talk about the it, but let's back it up and talk about what's uncomfortable about that. Right. Right. So we can talk about it at the place you're comfortable And at some point, I mean, we have to get to the place, if we want freedom, we have to get to the place of looking at it. Of being seen. Of being seen, the practice of being seen, yes. Mm -hmm. And of being the person who sees it. So we often will look for, I want my partner to see it. I want my therapist to see it. I want my parents to see it. I want the guy at the grocery store to see it. And I want people to acknowledge it. But that won't heal us. That won't assist us in the transformation I have to learn how to show up. And I say I in quotation marks. I'm doing the little quotes in the air right now because it's such a bigger conversation, but it's that compassion piece of bringing in awareness of compassion that can be present to whatever's showing up and not be identified with it as real or true. Say that again. It's this compassion piece of being able to be with whatever's showing up, yes. not having to identify it as real or true. So there's no, yeah. there's no qualifications. It's just being with it. Yes. And it gets, so we go into this happened, this is real, he or she did that, which, okay, maybe they did or didn't. But in trying to fight or dismiss or whatever, the person who's having the experience gets completely missed and lost. You're missing the experience. Yeah. So we're learning how to grow, identify, access, however you want to talk about that, to tap into. How I talk about it is we're tapping into the wisdom, love, and compassion that is available to everyone. Some people might call that God. Some people call it life. Some people 
that a may have self, different, yeah, whatever. a higher self, whatever language that fits for you. We're tapping into something that's bigger than us, but that's also within us so that we can be with whatever we're experiencing. So, you know, I'm thinking of a few different clients or couples that come into my office where they're always seeking truth. Mm. Right? Such a tricky word. Incredibly truth. tricky. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I'm bringing it up right now because, you know, I'm just kind of wondering if you can hold us in this kind of discussion mm. right here. And what is truth is like a huge question. Yes. But what are they seeking in that moment is always where my curiosity goes. Exactly. So often, and this is a projection, but often I think we're looking for validation. We're looking to be seen. We're looking to be heard. We're looking to have our experience validated. But what we tend to get caught up in is the content. So validate that you did X or you meant that, which that might not be the other person's experience. So they have a hard time being able to be with me because I'm asking them to be in the content with me rather than, right, the emotional experience or, right, what's going on with me. And again, the moment I look for someone else to do that work for me, it's a setup for failure. I love that. I mean, I so don't I love have to. Setup for I love the way you're putting it. <laughs> I mean, it, this is hard work. And I hear that almost every day. People this will say, is this is hard. I think there's a reason this is hard, though, and maybe we yeah. need to start there. Mm. And I think part of the reason this is so hard is because it's not something that we're taught, as in it's not mm. something that's necessarily done with or around or for. It's not modeled mm. for us when we're little mm. in many cases. For some, it is. And yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, that word hard always intrigues me because, well, yeah, but what you're doing is also hard. So which the, hard the do you want to choose? Yeah. yeah. So I always tell people we can choose the hard that leads us to suffering or we can choose the hard that leads us to freedom. You know, it's so interesting. I was sitting with a couple just the other night and I ended up using one of the Terry realisms on them, which I think is very much related to this conversation where I basically turned to one of the partners and I said, is it more important to you to be right or to be together? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Because mm -hmm. they were caught in that thing where one of them really needed to be right. And they reflected on that and they sat there and they breathed it in and it took like a good five minutes. And then mm -hmm. they looked up and they were like, it's not about being right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yes. And I, that happens so often. Like yeah. that little phrase right there is something that I mm. use a lot in my work. But I think it's part of this conversation that it's just as hard to sit in the feelings as it is mm. to sit in the conflict over the content. Yes, but sitting in the conflict is what we're familiar with, so mm -hmm. it's more comfortable. Because we're doing what we know. In an yep. old pattern, we're on autopilot. Yep. yep, yep. The brain is just, right, doing that thing. This is what we do. And so the great thing is that we know that change is possible. So how do you help evoke change? You know, it's a great question because, again, back to your pain is information, my experience, and I've had, I think, one person in my life experience and work say that's not the case for this person, but for the most part, most of us need to hit a pain point in order for us to want to go up against the difficulty of doing it differently. And for me, my experience, the people have to have a degree of willingness to be uncomfortable for change to be possible. 
And so a degree of willingness to be uncomfortable. Yeah. So now that degree of willingness to be uncomfortable is often motivated by the pain. Exactly. Yes. So it's a delicate balance to not get stuck in the pain. I call it swimming with the sharks, right? We can be with emotions in a way that creates suffering or a way that creates freedom. And so how you can know the difference is when you're doing it, well, and this is a subtle and it's hard to talk about this until someone has their own experience of it. But when you're in it, when you kind of come out of it, you actually feel worse versus when you're in it and you come out of it. I mean, it was hard, but you feel some relief. Does that, do you know what I mean by that? I think I do, but I want you to say it again and maybe yeah. in the same or different words, because I think this is a hard thing to digest. And I mm. want to make sure that we're giving it space and that we're not rushing it. Let me use a personal life example. So last year I had one of my best friends die and awful, some worst pain I've yeah. felt in my life. And frankly, I never dealt with, had grief to that degree. And so being with the pain of losing her, so I would just be going around life and a memory or her face or smile, her laugh, something would just register and I would just sob and I would feel it. And it was like a wave of emotion would just wash over me. Mm -hmm. And then in like seconds, it would be gone and it would be kind of like, I could actually even sometimes laugh and it was as if I just didn't have that previous experience, which was very different than when something else would register. I'd feel the pain and then I'd be in a conversation of this isn't fair. You know, why did this happen? I'll never have a friend like her again. My life is so empty. So there's a conversation feeding a belief that something's wrong. This shouldn't be happening. This is wrong, which doesn't allow for it's being stuck in the belief of something wrong, resistance. Which it sounds like another way of talking about the conversation around truth and righteousness. And I mean, resistance is that same conversation. Yes. And so for me, it was such a powerful experience of we can be in really painful, uncomfortable, awful, tragic situations. I mean, it made me think of, I mean, again, I'm not comparing this as this is the same as that, but Victor Frankl's, right? Man's Search for Meaning, right? You know, here he was in a concentration camp. I know. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's like, wow, okay, how can people go through such adversity and tragedy and, you know, trauma and still find meaning, still be okay? And this is a little bit different language than he used, but I think he's, we're saying the same thing is there isn't resistance. There isn't wanting life to be other than it is. You know, I grew up with two grandparents who were Holocaust survivors. Mm. And so their stories are like, you know, imprinted mm. in my epigenetics, but also imprinted in the stories that I was told. And Victor Frankl's book is mm. an amazing example of the types of ways that someone survives, right? And one of the things I love about what he teaches and talks about, especially in that book, is that he says there's a space between the things that happen to us and the way that we respond to them. Yes. Right? And it's in noticing that space that we regain control over our lives, that we have power. 
Yes. And I mean, that right there, that's it for everything. So we're looking at the space between the thoughts, the space between the breath, the space between everything. So, you know, it sounds really corny, right? But it's really what works is slowing down, Mm -hmm. using the breath as an acre, getting back here in this moment right? What some people call grounding exercises. You know, what colors do you see? What sounds do you hear? What can you touch and feel? Get back here in this moment. And in that, there is a lot of spaciousness that when we're caught up in a story in the mind, there is no spaciousness. There's clutter. There's chaos. There's noise. There's something wrong. There's resistance. There's- we get caught up in the spider webs. Yes. <sighs> I mean, even just naming it, right? Like Mm, we're naming it now. Even just when we name it, we create spaciousness. Yes. It's the beginning process, right? And so here's another really key piece that I teach, and I'm not owning this, but it's just something that I don't see a lot in the world is to not own the experience. So when we name something, we externalize it from the authenticity that we are. So depression happens to us, right? It's feelings show up for us, right? It's one of the things I love about the movie. Oh, I'm forgetting it now. What the Disney movie. I wish I could um, help, but I can't. I know. I know the Disney movie about the feelings. Oh my goodness. Oh, That's inside so out. Inside out. Thank you. Right. I love how it externalized the emotions. Mm-hmm. So emotions happen for us. They're like the weather, right? And so when we identify with a situation with the thoughts, with our behavior, with feelings, it's really hard to separate the authenticity from it. So if I do something that isn't the greatest choice in that moment, even though it's the best I could do, then afterwards I get beat up by, you're an idiot, right? Why'd you do that? By your own thoughts. I actually coach people, it's not even my thoughts, it's just thoughts. The thoughts come in And they beat me up. It's the bully in the head, right? So I know that you study Zen Buddhism, and it sounds to me like this is what you're kind of teaching here, what you're coaching, is like non-attachment, non-attachment even to the thoughts that are coming in. Exactly. Yes. So that frees up, that creates the space to see the authenticity of the human, right, regardless of what is happening to the human, Okay, so I'm curious now if we can just tilt this on its side a little bit and talk about the mirroring that happens when we start seeing the authenticity of the human without getting caught up in all of it, but in relationship with others. Yeah, so kind of back to, you know, relationships are, I think, they're one of the most beautiful setups to allow us to learn and grow. They're our playgrounds. Mm Mm-hmm. Kids learn and grow in playgrounds, right? So relationships are playground. And the um, Imago therapy, I'm losing his name right now, but one of the things I always loved about his work. Harville Hendricks. uh, Thank you, Harville Hendricks is, right? He said it so well that we choose the person who is going to trigger the exact things we need to grow and heal. Yes, I love that. Right, yeah, but they won't heal us. We have to heal ourselves. I have to. 
Yes, back to the responsibility. And so, you know, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, when we struggle with external relationships, we can get away from them, right? They go to their house, I go to mine, you know, we have some time, we'll meet up for dinner later, you know, whatever. We can break up and ghost each other. We can, (laughs) you know, like we can get so angry that it's all their problem. We can start in a war. We can really internalize it in a lot of ways that doesn't let us look at all at ourselves. Yes, it can really be, it's all them, Mm -hmm. right? And so in committed relationships, right, where you live together or you're, you know, dating exclusively and you see each other a lot, that is harder to run away from. But we can still do the same process of blaming them or feeling, blaming ourselves, right? That blame, it's either external. And my experience of it is blaming externally and internally, happens for all of us. It's like, I'm getting blamed, right? And then that gets exhausting. And so then the other person gets blamed. And then I start feeling guilty because I, you know, start seeing my behaviors and then I get blamed again. It's what Terry Real would talk about, about this dance between grandiosity and shame. Grandiosity and shame being something that they both share the same energy of contempt. One is directed in and one is directed out. Yes. Yes. And so It's why theories or paradigms are helpful in it gives us a way to make sense of what's going on for us. So again, if we cannot feel bad about that, we can just, you know, get little clues that how does blame happen for me, right? For me personally, what language shows up for me? What behaviors show up for me when I'm in the process of blame? And then when I start seeing that happen, which means I'll be engaged in the behavior, behavior is the last to change. So when people come in, right, for work, right, everybody wants, that's why I don't believe there's, there's no quick fixes, 12 sessions, you know, all of that stuff. It's just never been my experience is we get the information and it all makes sense. And then we go out and we practice with it, which means we're likely going to engage in the exact behaviors that I don't like, that aren't helpful, that, you know, cause problems, but I'm now coming at it with a new lens. So and if, I'm just yeah, going to slow ahead. you down again because yeah. I think this is so important. And mm. you're starting this by saying behavior is the last thing to change. And mm-hmm. then you're saying you're going to come in, you're going to gather this information, you're going to go out and practice, but you're going to do that with a new lens. So what you're saying essentially is you're going to start, I love this, right? I'm giggling to myself as I say this out loud, but you're going to start by practicing seeing yourself. Yes. So, well, and what I find even in myself, I see it and I see it in others first. Mm -hmm. right? Because it's safer to see it in someone else than it is often to see it because we're trying to avoid, for me, we're trying to avoid shame and guilt, right? So that's okay. So that's good. If we can start seeing it in others, then we're seeing it. And then if we can begin to start seeing how I'm doing it, again, without the beatings, then choice becomes right available. But I might need to fall into that behavior several dozen hundred times for me to see all the aspects of how this happens for me before I'm ever able to change it. And where you get triggered and what activates it. And at what point you can take responsibility now. And then a month later, maybe you can take responsibility a little earlier, right? And so there's all of these kind of ripples that start happening as your awareness grows. Oh, you said it beautifully. Yes, exactly. You know, I have this handout that I give to a lot of my clients. I'll email it to you. 
after we get off this call. And I, I may even put a link to it in the show notes, but it's basically like three deceptively simple steps that you can use to build what I call connectfulness in your relationship. But it starts with this practice of being seen and mm. it moves into these cultivating conversations and just kind of practicing and repeating. It's very much what you're talking about because it's this ongoing learning that Mm. you're really making space for. Yes, and it's truly, and I think it's really important that we do break it down in steps. So, I mean, one, I'd love to see that. That'll be fun. And I think most of us therapists are all shooting for the same goal. We just kind of all have different ways in which we're attempting to do that, that help people and do it for ourselves is the first part is really just to begin to notice, to pay attention. So most people, they see the, the problem and they want it gone. And so what we have to bring is that unconditional love, that compassion to, okay, this is happening. I finally start wanting to stop smoking. But well, maybe that's, you know, let's do with relationships. I see that I yell a lot. So there is no way I'm just going to be able to stop yelling. But I can begin to notice and pay attention to yelling when it happens and everything you talked about. What's the trigger? Where am I at body? What messages are going on in the mind? Right? What am I believing? I want to just also bring attention to you're noticing where you're yelling. You're noticing Mm. what's going on for you. You're noticing Mm -hmm. the relationship. You might even be engaging in a conversation about this. You might be able to start holding yourself in some warm regard even in the moment. Yes. Right? There's this other piece. And there's a reason why we can't just start with changing the behavior. Yes. I know that there's cognitive behavioral therapists who might teach us that we can. My thought is that that doesn't necessarily hardwire a new behavioral pattern into us because we're behaving out of this conditioned unconscious response because that's the groove that's been set in our neural pathways. It might even be in our epigenetics. It might go back generations, right? We really have to bring this awareness to it to fine tune it and to create a new groove. Yes. I mean, I really think if it was as easy as changing behavior, we'd all do it. None of us wants to suffer. Right. So, you know, we don't show up for a relation saying we're going to blow it up. It happens over time with all the little decisions that are made that are driven by belief systems. So, you know, when I'm yelling, if we back it up, right, I mean, there's a lot that happened way before the yelling happened. And again, we tend to want to say, well, you know, this happens with my kids all the time. Like, God, if you would just do that, I wouldn't have to yell, right? And so, you know, having to back on your shoes. I've asked you 20 times already today and we're five minutes late for school. Go get your shoes on. Yes. Well, and then here's the other thing that I've been looking at a lot as a person who has been brought up that anger is dangerous, that I've been really looking at, well, can yelling be okay if it's done in a way that isn't violent? Right. So, and I'm using violence on a big continuum, right? I'm not talking about hitting. I mean, it can be hitting, but, you know, blaming. You're an idiot because you haven't done it, right? That's aggressive. But if I'm saying, I am so angry that I have told you four times to get your shoes on and they're not on yet. I am late, you know, so I'm owning. I am feeling really angry. This doesn't feel good, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been really playing with, because I want to raise children who aren't afraid of anger, who don't repress it, but who also don't just act it out. 
And what we know is repression leads to acting it out. And I want to come back into this a little bit more too, because part of the reason why this is so important and part of this dialogue around relationships is because when we're raising our children, we're teaching them how to be relational. Yes. And we're teaching them how to be relational by how we show up, not actually by, I actually don't think you can teach children to be one way if I'm a different way. Right. They learn who we are. They learn it through modeling, through how (laughs) you relate to them. Yeah. You can't say do this and then do something else yourself. You have to be the way you want them to be. Yeah, right. Be the change you want in the world, right? It always comes back to this person. So it comes back to taking responsibility and being aware. Responsibility, being aware. Yeah. Laura, this is so delicious. I feel like I can jam with you on this for like all day. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, let's go take a bite to eat and then we'll be back, right? Be back in five. Yeah. You know what? I kind of think we should do that. I think we should take a break and I think we should have you back on again. This sounds fun. I would love to come back. Okay, good. Yes. Because I know that there's a place that we haven't really hit yet that's been in my notes to hit with you. And I'm wondering if we should leave that for another day. But no, I think we kind of did hit there. I was going to talk a little bit about relationship mindfulness, but I think that is a way of saying everything Mm. that we've already said. And one of my notes under that, which I know is something that resonates for both you and I, is that it all starts with the relationship we have with ourselves, and everything else gets projected out from there. But we have talked about that in this episode already. Yeah, you know what? And it's so fun because if we were to talk about it tomorrow, The fun thing about this whole thing is we might say it differently. It'd all be the same, but we'd use, right? We'd have maybe different energy or we'd use different examples. And so what I love about what you pointed at earlier, this is a practice. So Mm -hmm. it's not, we take in the information, have the aha, and it just, I mean, we have ahas in our life all the time that don't change anything. You know, the other thing that I love about, that I learned from my teacher is, In order to have transformation, there has to be a change in behavior, right? So it can sound like I'm saying the opposite of what I said earlier, behavior is the last to change. It's that there's so many steps to this process. It starts with awareness. It starts with showing up. It starts with being seen, practicing, watching, paying attention. And then we begin to make some play with behavior changes. And then eventually, transformation will happen whenever we just begin to show up to ourselves differently. Yes. You know, I'm thinking also again to some of my clients and I'm thinking about how they come in and they're building the awareness and they're building the awareness and they're building the awareness and they're seeing their patterns. They're starting to see themselves. They're Mm -hmm. growing more compassion and empathy for one another. And then inevitably, right at that point where we're in it, we're really in the awareness building place one of the partners will turn to me and say, okay, well, we need more things to do. We need more homework. (laughs) Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and you know, it stops feeling like we're doing when we're in the awareness. Yes. So it's that quick kind of exit out of, and there's usually a belief there, is this enough? Right? Mm -hmm. Deep down. And to me, deep down, there's a sincerity of, I want to make sure I get this. Yeah. This is great. This is powerful. Give us more, right? And you're like, you're doing it. You're doing it. Yeah. 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 We could talk all day about this. And we will. We will. Okay. We'll have at least one more conversation, but I have a feeling there'll be many more. (laughs) To be continued, yes. On air or off. (laughs) Yes. Both. All of the above. (laughs) Yes. Let's just go and retreat together. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let's create 
one together. That sounds fun. Oh, that sounds <laughs> delicious. You just planted a seed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's do that. So tell our listeners how they can find you. You're based on the other coast. You're not on my coast. You're out in California. I'm in San Diego, California, and our website is www.c is in cat, f is in Frank, m is in Mary, r is in Robert, san diego.com. So it stands for Center for Mindful Relationships. So, or they can call me at 619-300-2124. Awesome. And we'll include all of that in our show notes too. So they can just click on the link if they want to find you there. Very fun. Awesome. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so Oh, pleasure. deep bow to you. Thank you. And here's the other last thing. It's like, so on my energy, I'm high as a kite right now, just flying, right? This is so much fun. When we plug in and tap into this, you know, we don't, we don't need drugs, right? This is, right, living life and life takes care of us in this way. Oh, so, so I mean, thank you. Oh, gosh, yeah. Mutual bow. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just love that conversation, and I can pretty much promise you that Laura will be back on the Practice of Being Seen podcast for a future episode, and who knows, maybe there will be a retreat that we collaborate on together. But meanwhile, I do want you to check out the Valentine's Couples Retreat that I have going on at Menlo Mountain. It's called Divine Mirrors, and it's really going to be an exploration and conscious connection. So if... Having an experiential retreat with your beloved sounds like the way that you want to spend Valentine's Day. Well, then come join us. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go over to practiceofbeingseen.com slash events to learn more. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and any other one. You go ahead and shoot me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr. and produced by Kidneystone Studio. Mm-hmm.